0: Today on The Black Goat, peer review, what is it for, how does it work, what do you need to know about it, and a letter about living your life by unreplicable findings. (music) Hi everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier, and last time we recorded, we were afraid... Alexa was gonna get carried off by a tornado. This time, we're afraid Samin's gonna keel over from deep vein thrombosis.
1: <laughs> I think maybe like three trans U.S. and transatlantic trips in a short while is too many for my calves.
0: Yeah, Samin. So, so Samin is in the Netherlands right now. She's in Amsterdam, and uh, she's there to to do a workshop. And she mentioned that her leg is hurting. What was that?
1: Maybe it's the running. Maybe I shouldn't be running. There That's what I was going to
2: say. Too much running.
0: Yeah. So you. So, <laughs> so you were saying your your leg is hurting, and and we were like, "Well, tell us where you are in case you die during the podcast. We can send an ambulance." And and you started to say, it, and I was just like, "That's a very long Dutch word. The name of your street. I. <laughs> you're on your own."
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know.
0: So do you, I guess, well, you, you said your leg's been hurting, so you can't go running in Amsterdam. Are there places to go running in Amsterdam?
1: Well, it's, it's super cold and rainy anyway. Okay. Plus, I don't like running in front of people, so I was, I was not planning on even trying to run. But I did walk around a lot before my legs started hurting, so I feel pretty uh-huh. good about
0: that. Okay.
1: I, can... <laughs> I
0: decided. Do do the cyclists yeah. mow, mow down pedestrians the way motorists mow down cyclists in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah I totally. think so.
2: Yeah, you have to be careful. (laughs) Yeah, luckily I was with my legs are sore too, but not because of a blood clot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So like, I'm always really disappointed at how non-transferable like fitness is. Um, So I feel like I'm reasonably fit right now, but I started playing soccer with Mm -hmm. some of my friends, and like my legs hurt every time I play, which is like, that's like sometimes I run and I also do like things that involve leg strength. So I feel like I should be fine for running in soccer. Like I should have that transferable skill, like leg is it the changing directions? I feel like that Yeah, I think it's like spurts methods. of speed and changing okay. directions. Um, but my but my legs are sore every time. Um yeah, it's like when I moved to Minnesota and learned to walk on ice and then
1: you were sore in like the weirdest places because you're using these tiny muscles to like not slip.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. So Alexa, are you one of yeah. those like super hardcore like adult rec league soccer people that you're like yelling at the refs? And I mean, I have I have two friends, two different friends who, <laughs> who play adult like rec soccer who one of them got red carded out of his championship for like giving a, guy a bloody nose <laughs> and the other guy gave someone else a bloody nose. So I'm like, wait, okay, I have two mm-hmm. soccer friends who've like, headbutted dudes. Uh, is that you? Uh,
2: No, but so that is like, to me, a very fascinating thing about like adult rec leagues. Um, because I feel like there are there's like a subset of that population of people who are very intense. And it I feel like people always look so ridiculous when they're competitive in those contexts. So like actually I do think that that like I have that aspect of my personality um but I really try hard to suppress it um because I feel like there's like nothing more embarrassing than being like the person who's like playing in an adult dodgeball league and is like really into it, you know. Um but yeah, so but I think that um a key factor is whether or not you're good at the sport. Um so all of the like things that I've played in those kinds of contexts have been things that I'm pretty bad at. Like right now, like soccer, I've just never even played soccer. Like, um, so I'm very bad at it and I have very low expectations for my own performance. Like if somebody kicks the ball to me, my goal is to stop it and then kick it to somebody on my team. That's my goal. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's so a good goal. Like, really low. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've never, but I gotten... like, sorry. No, oh, go ahead. I think if it's like something that I think I'm good at, um then I can get pretty competitive. Like I'm I get embarrassingly competitive when I play ping pong against my grad student Alex. Um, cuz he's pretty good and then like for a while I was playing a lot and I like thought I should be able to beat him, but I was not always able to beat him. In fact, I think maybe he beats me more often. Um but yeah.
1: I, I feel, had to work at not being embarrassingly competitive at Catan. I'm not sure I've mastered it.
2: Um, I that, bad. that's, that's why i have no desire to play that game because <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. My, laughs> i know that you'll like i know that you'll win and i mean that I was, that might be if i'm
1: actually. winning i i think i'm pretty yeah. gracious if i'm winning right that's not the hard part is
0: yeah my my or weekly
1: really badly i can be a great loser it's when you just barely lose right that's when it's like really hard
0: My, Mm -hmm. my weekly poker game is about half guys who take poker reasonably seriously. Like they, they more or less know what they're doing. And then the other half is just guys who are there for fun. And normally that's fine. Like the sort of, you know, everybody kind of goes along and whatever. Um, But we recently, we, we did like an, the group of us like went away for the weekend and we decided, so we do this thing when we play poker where if you win a hand with two seven offsuit, which is like the worst hand, um, you you get kind of like a bounty. And we we usually when we play it, it's like oh you get you know ten chips or whatever. And then sometimes we'll make it go up every time somebody gets it to make it a little more fun. So someone, I think it might have been me, someone had the idea for this weekend getaway to have it go up for the entire weekend. So uh, so by like and we are we are there for two nights, and so by the second night. It was basically if you won a hand with two seven offsuit, you would win like more than a buy-in, which is for people that don't, don't play poker, like completely changes the game because it just makes you just do stupid shit when you have this hand. And it was funny because there was like one guy in the group who was just like throwing the chips, or he was just like, "God fucking damn it!" You know, like and who, who like <laughs> you know you but, you monkeys throwing in your chips or whatever. And it, it was sort of like amusing. And at some point, we we're like, "Okay, we have to pull the plug on this because you know it." Basically, Is it like when
1: someone shoots the moon in hearts. Does it feel like that?
0: I I don't play hearts, yeah. but it's probably yeah. It's it's basically like it turns. Okay, it was on wins by from, losing. Okay. Yeah. No. It, yeah. Because that's like deliberate strategy. This is like it changes it from like a strategy game to like tossing a coin or a slot machine or whatever. Like it it just completely changes the oh, direction. Of the after game.
1: you have that. Activity.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. But you
2: would you would play strategically with obviously two and seven, right? Like you would have to. Yeah, but he's talking. I about mean, unless you got really lucky, have you'd have to bluff your way.
0: way. Yeah. So the you don't play. The the, the bounty game. got so high that it just completely changed the game. It was like it if somebody wins with it it, because we were also we were playing a tournament and so it was like you could you could just sort of like knock somebody out once anyway uh our our listeners (laughs) of don't play poker (laughs) of losses that was way too long of a story anyhow i hear you on the competitive non-competitive that's what i was where i was trying to go with the story
1: in sports as an adult like post grad school i've never found a league where you can play as an amateur and even so like I played ultimate frisbee for fun in college and then when I was an assistant professor in St. Louis there were three leagues of three different levels of competitiveness and I joined the least competitive league and I was still like I think the worst person on the team probably and they were not happy about it like they did not, <laughs> they were not you know yeah, and I was right. like this is the third least competitive league of like adults who do this after work how yeah. is this like yeah. how are you also good first of all and then like yeah i
0: know what you mean i i feel like the, I, I, maybe 10 years ago there was a fad of like adult kickball and things like that and it it felt oh, like I when was that just st- thinking
2: about kickball kickball is the worst one well yeah when mm-hmm. it when
0: that started it was like, okay, let's go... I mean, it was totally a hipster thing, right? And it it was like, let's go drink some beers and play this children's game. And then all of a sudden, there started being like organized kickball leagues and people... Like, I'd I'd go past Mm -hmm. the park near my house and there'd be people with uniforms playing kickball. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, you're playing a children's Mm -hmm. game.
2: Yes. Yep. Yeah, I feel like uh, it sounds kickball and dodgeball, I feel sound good. Like they sound like it's like a bunch of like silly adults, like playing a children's game. Um, but I don't know what it is about those two in particular. Um, but they feel like the broiest, most competitive ones.
0: That is, that's um,
2: <laughs> And then like the, the, the thing about kickball too, is that like, even if you are really good at kickball, you look like an idiot. <laughs> um, so it's like, oh man, I just can't take people seriously. They're like so into it and so competitive and they're good at it. But like, you're just like, you're catching like a giant yeah. ball with both hands, you know? Yeah. That's almost consistent with my
1: karaoke theory, except I think, so my karaoke theory is that karaoke is fun if you're either really, really bad at it, like me, or really, really good at singing, like Michelle Naughton or my student Jesse. But like, it's the worst for people who are in between. So like, kickball not the same because I don't think you can be good enough that you don't look ridiculous. But karaoke, I think you can be good enough that you don't look ridiculous. But yeah. you look the most ridiculous if you're good enough that you look like you think you're doing it well. Yes. Right. but You're yeah. not like a professional. <laughs> Just don't take mm-hmm. it
0: seriously. Yeah. Well, speaking of not taking speaking things seriously. Much, I was. Oh, go ahead.
1: One thing I was at a bar in Amsterdam the other night and they started doing basically karaoke. Like they would just play music and like ask people to sing along and they did what's up. And they said it was the last song they did to close down the bar. And they were like, it's the perfect karaoke song as a song you and I did Alexa at night top. Yeah. yeah, I remember. I was like, yes, I knew it. It is (laughs) a karaoke song.
2: It was a good song. That is one of the songs that like that. And I, and the Toto song, I feel, are songs that people often like to do for karaoke, and they're great songs, but they're really hard to sing well, and they're, like, I think they're very fun for the singers and very not fun. For them. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So, so, on the topic of things not being taken seriously, uh, we almost missed that this is right around our one-year anniversary of the podcast, so yeah. we dropped... Yeah our first three episodes i remember we recorded we thought like we should do a few because we'd read that's a good way to start a podcast and we dropped our first three episodes on march 22nd of last year and we're recording this on the 25th so it's like a year and three days and i remember very distinctly because we that was my wife's and my 10th anniversary is right around this time and or was a year ago it was our 10th anniversary and we'd gone on this trip And I remember like sitting in our vacation rental in Palm Springs and I had brought my laptop with me to like drop our podcast with and (laughs) like watching Mm -hmm. and being like, is anybody going to listen? What's going to happen? So happy anniversary, (laughs) you guys. It's our our one year anniversary.
1: So do we get to join your wedding anniversary every year now? It's like a combo anniversary.
0: Totally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure Kristen we, will love that. We had uh, we we like for the for 10 we did this big trip to Palm Springs and then this year it was like where cuz we're leaving on sabbatical in a week and so we're super busy and didn't want to go away and so it was like you know Kristen made a nice dinner but we basically like watched Michigan cuz she's a Michigan alum we watched Michigan in the the March Madness tournament and then went to sleep um but uh yeah that's <laughs> that's how it goes I guess. Well, should we? I uh, hope by the time
1: oh, the Arabs Duke has lost. By the way, I'm just saying. Yeah. I hope yeah. by tonight Duke has lost, but Let's, at least by the time. It's
0: should we? Yeah. Should we pre-register any? My my brackets already busted, which my son oh, yeah, keeps no, waving no. in my face. But uh, I had yeah. I had Gonzaga going all the way, and they're gone.
1: Yeah. I mean, at this
0: point, you have to root for
1: Loyola, right? Like you'd be crazy not to.
0: Yeah. Always about the underdog. I guess the underdog. it's for Michigan than not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, so should we do our letter?
2: Yeah. Yeah, let's do our letter. All right. All right, uh, this letter begins, G'day, Goaters. In the context of the replication crisis, a number of pretty intuitive and seemingly reasonable phenomena have come under heavy scrutiny. This is a good thing for robust empirical science. Nonetheless, I've been finding myself continuing to apply certain simple heuristics in my own thought and action shaped by what I now know to be flawed psychological research. For instance, I still generally try to limit my choices to reduce regret and anxiety based on Barry Schwartz's paradox of choice, despite questionable replications and meta-analytic evidence. I still feel that serving my food on smaller bowls and plates will help restrict serving sizes to healthy amounts, despite Brian Wensink's research now getting a thorough rinsing. Is it just a case of sheer cognitive dissonance and knowing that Losada ratios are objectively garbage but still living by that general principle proposed because it seems to make sense? Okay, I don't actually do this last one. I was wondering if you could speak to how and when research questioning or discrediting a particular phenomena should affect the way we live our lives as individuals. I think in general, the answer seems to me, who cares, do whatever works for you. But then to what extent should scientists reflect hard empirical findings in their own actions? And do any of you have particular attitudes, beliefs or behaviors that you know to be biased or sorry, to be based on flimsy or downright wrong research, but continue to follow any how? Thanks. NPNP, neither practicing nor preaching. Um, I liked this letter a lot because um, I feel like I identify with the letter writer Um, and some of the specific examples as well, right? So the paradox of choice, um, I like, I definitely think that that impacts my decisions in daily life. Um, So, like, one domain in which I think that it's, it seems, it seems, clear to me that the paradox of choice is operating is like in dating. So I think like generally if I like am interested in somebody, I'm like trying to not like trying to limit my choices because I feel like that interferes with like developing interest in someone. Um, And maybe that's not exactly like uh, exactly flawed reasoning. Um, But I think of those findings and I think of the paradox of choice and I like use that as an explanation when I, describe it to people
0: yeah
1: i think it's hard because like i can't think of that many phenomena where the phenomenon has been thoroughly discredited i can think of things where we now know the evidence isn't really evidence like that you know we should like i think you know in the case of wansing like from what i understand it's more like we shouldn't trust his publications rather than we've now studied the effects in more rigorous ways and they're not there maybe that's happened Mm to you but i don't know of that Whereas Mm -hmm. something like power posing, I think we've now studied it from every angle, and we have a pretty good sense of there not being effects on other things than self-reported power. Mm -hmm. Um, So for like power posing, I would say like maybe, yeah, if you act as if you think it'll have an effect on those other DVs, then maybe that would be kind of unscientific of you. But for the food portion thing, I would say, well, absence of evidence, even if we throw away all advancing stuff, isn't evidence of absence. Maybe the the theory happens to be true. Mm -hmm. or Like, in some cases, we've thoroughly investigated one particular narrow hypothesis, um, like facial feedback, but not the whole theory of, like, embodiment or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of times where it's, like, perfectly reasonable to hang on to the general theory, even if a narrow operationalization of it turns out not to be true. So I think there's a lot of ways to reconcile. uh, Yeah. And I think that sometimes people can go too far in ignoring their intuitions in the In the um, pursuit of like wanting to be rational and scientific and like some of the people I'm most skeptical of in my everyday life not as a scientist but just like I remember like in college the people that would like really rub me the wrong way were the people this is an item on the California adult Q sort is pride self on being rational right like the people who are like well I'm just I'm only going to do the things that science says work and blah blah blah. Mm Um, and like one, I mean, I had I had a boyfriend like this once, and he would like give me a really hard time about a lot of things. Like, I take zinc when I think I'm getting sick, and I would and he would argue with me about like the scientific evidence, blah blah. blah. And I would be like, look, I, uh, if nothing else, I believe in the placebo effect, so leave me alone. You know, maybe the placebo <laughs> effect is not really I don't know. Um, but yeah, I think that you can you can take it too far, right? The like desire to want to be only evidence based in all you do. Um, do
2: you think that are there things that you guys that are research-based that impact the decisions that you make in your life pretty heavily?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like, yeah, I, I try to, um, I mean, things like, I guess, you know, I, well, so, so, Diet stuff is, uh, you know, like sort of healthy eating kinds of things. I certainly, there are things I pay attention to and sort of form opinions about, and, and nutrition research is. A giant, sorry, any nutrition research listeners, but <laughs> nutrition <laughs> research is a, a, a flaming dumpster of P hacking in at least some areas, right? Like there, it's just over the course of my life, like the low fat thing and cholesterol and this and that and whatever, yeah. and all the, all these crazy fad diets and some of which make their way into the scientific literature as well. But there, you know, there are also things that, uh, um, I think are, are pretty good advice. Now I can't always, that's, that's more of a case where it's like, I could probably out a pretty healthy way of eating, but I'm still going to eat junk food and pastries and whatever. Um, but that that's one area where mm-hmm. I do try to like sort of sift through the the recommendations to find good ones. Um, you know, I I mean, like I got my kid vaccinated. That was really important to me, and that's something. Right, I yeah, that yeah. I, I try to talk to other people about as well. Because Eugene has pretty low, like nationally, I think Oregon has pretty low vaccination rates. And, and there are some some parts of Eugene and, you know, it's like that's something that's a public health issue. It's putting I mean, theoretically it puts my kid at danger, although, you know, the odds are really low, but it puts the community at risk. And and I understand people's reasons for that. Um, uh, and, and so I try not to be like, the condescending rationalist when I talk to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's like an important thing, right? So there are things like that um, that are and every time we take
1: medicine, based. or you know,
0: yeah, yeah, much of our
1: behavior is based on scientific evidence, indirectly at least, because yeah. we trust authorities who are using scientific or we think are using scientific evidence. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, but I think I um, mean I think the 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 letter raises an interesting point that like, so I mean, what you're saying, Samin, is like you you can't like science underdetermines life, right? <laughs> like you just there's not enough information to live your life rationally. And uh, um, in, in every way, and people that claim to be doing are just fooling themselves. But like when there's and when there's clear evidence for something like vaccination, I think, you know, we should take that seriously. I think the, the letter is raising like, what if there is clear evidence? Well, there's uh, yeah, like you, you placed it two different ways. Like what if there's clear evidence just saying something doesn't matter? Um, and then what if there's just not clear evidence but you're going off of an earlier finding and I find that Mm -hmm. from there's there's a sort of rational analysis way of doing of looking at that like should you be doing it anyway in a rational sense but there's also kind of a there's a sense in which like I, I, I don't know quite how to frame this but like as a scientist wanting to Wanting to live kind of like a coherent life, wanting to sort of, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, how do you, how do you integrate that knowledge with your, the part of you that lives 24 hours a day when you're not, when you don't have your scientist hat on? Yeah. Like, I think that
2: the what the who cares do whatever works for you response is like uh, easily defensible and I think that's probably the reaction that I would have in most actual cases like yeah like if you were doing like taking zinc um for my roommates like always drinking like vitamin c tea when she gets sick mm-hmm. I think it makes no difference but like do what you got to do you know um and even if I've talked to people who are not psychologists about power posing too and sometimes like you know, they'll be persuaded that the power posing research doesn't hold up, but they'll just say like, like some people like that idea a lot. And so they'll say like, yeah, I don't know. Like I believe that you, that the research doesn't hold up, but like it feels good to me or something like that. And that's, that's, I think generally a fine reaction, but I do feel like if you sort of think about it more deeply, like for me as an individual, I do, I have the same sort of reaction that I had to, I think that, sometimes people would defend criticisms of social psych research, especially earlier on in like replicability movement stuff um, by saying like, Oh, does it really matter if this effect is like different than we thought it was? Or does it, is it really like a huge deal if um, this effect isn't replicable, the social psych finding? Um, And my reaction was, well, I can, do we take ourselves seriously or not? And if we don't take ourselves seriously, then why are we spending our time on this? Mm -hmm. And so I do think I have sort of the same reaction here where it's like, if I don't make any decisions in my life that are research-based, and if I don't update my decision-making based on new research findings, then do I like really believe in this, Mm -hmm. um, this endeavor that we're involved in? And so it's not even necessarily that I think like, as a consequence now I should make sure that I'm living my life in a more research-based way. But I think if you reflect on the way that you make your decisions and you you realize like my what I've learned from the research in my field doesn't influence my life in any way, which I'm not saying that either of you are saying or that I'm saying, but if you did come to that conclusion, I would think it would have implications for whether what you're doing is worthwhile.
1: Yeah, I think this is really, Interesting. I hadn't made this connection before, but this is really related to Danny Ingber's cover story in slate like a week or two ago about parenting and him, like he talks about trying to really let his scientific belief about the fact that parenting decisions don't seem to matter very much beyond, you know, above a certain threshold. Um, so like smaller decisions, like should we potty train the kid now or in a month or whatever? Um, those kinds of things are unlikely to have long-term impacts on the kids' personality or well-being or things like that. Um I thought it was a really interesting and like it was a nice mix of like the science and then like what the, what that means to internalize it and to really live by mm-hmm. what your scientific beliefs are. Um and I don't have kids so I don't it's easy for me to say like yeah, I believe the evidence about like parenting within a certain range not really mattering too much for long-term outcomes. Um and I, like, I have a similar attitude about people in general, that people aren't easy to change. And I don't know, this is kind of a chicken and egg problem. Like, do I believe that because I'm a personality psychologist or my I a personality psychologist? Yeah, I right. believe that? But I think I absolutely make major life decisions based on the assumption
2: I was that, gonna say that
1: earlier one is not going to be a happy thing for anybody. Or yeah. like I think I have also a very deep faith in the value of peer reports, not necessarily superior to self-reports, but like an important complement that has some... Value. So I think I take what other people tell me about me who know me well quite seriously. And again, I don't know if that shaped my research or if my research shaped my views, but they're at least in alignment.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of, this letter reminded me a little bit of our recent episode on hype and and talking about like, when should research findings turn into practical advice? And I kind of feel like a lot of this stuff shouldn't have been practical advice in the first place like there's so much basic research that you're you're pressured to like as a scientist when you do the press release either you're pressured or or you know as we talked about sometimes people just do this like turn into practical advice And it's like no that's not a good evidence base for giving even if that what you said was even if the experiment came out exactly the way you said it did every single time someone replicated it that just wouldn't be good advice that's not enough to like give people applied advice And so in that sense, it's like, you can look to the research for inspiration about how to live your life, but you have to decide how to live your life. Like, I feel like the, the fact that like personality is stable, like that's a really important finding, right? That, you know, how stable personality is. There's lots of other reasons to say, like, don't live your life thinking you're going to change people, right? But like, that, you know, you still like, one on one with another human being trying to decide what to do with them, you have to make a decision that there's not a study that tells you like, should I break up with this guy? You know, or whatever it is. Like <laughs> um, you know, you can you can sort of you you use your knowledge about human nature and some of that might come from having read science, but a lot of that is just you're being a human being in that in that interaction, in that space. Um and, you know, you have to make those decisions. And and we can kind of like You know, there are these macro trends that like, oh, if everybody knew X, they might, you know, live life a little bit differently. But moment by moment, it's just it's it's always more complicated than the research will tell you.
1: Yeah. So I think like my answer to the letter writer would be I think it's fine to like if you have habits or whatever that are shaped by an understanding of the literature that you realize isn't quite rational I think where you get in trouble, especially if you're a scientist yourself, is if you're telling other people that they should do the same thing for that reason.
0: Yeah,
1: Um, Your opinion might carry too much weight. and...
0: And I think, I mean, I think it's also as a scientist, the, it can be useful to feed that back the other direction to ask questions about how we do science. Like what, what does it say about this finding that it still seems like a good idea to do this after I know that the research no longer Mm -hmm. holds up and that raises a lot of interesting questions like oh was this just taking some like folk wisdom and sort of trying to like bundle it into a clever package was this you know maybe maybe this general phenomenon you know you can't say it in a general sense but like the you know there are some specific instances where it's true but then we overgeneralized from those or whatever maybe this phenomenon resembles something that really is true but that's kind of like wouldn't have been exciting and so someone sort of like you know dolled it up into a fancy scientific sounding hypothesis like i think i think it is really interesting to look back and say Oh, I I discovered that this thing isn't true, but it still seems like a good idea, or I still feel like I can see it going on in my life. And and sometimes that tells you about how you view life, like placebo effects or confirmation bias. But I think that also mm-hmm. sometimes says something about like, how specific and precise. So, and again, setting aside empirical issues like repl- replicability, just like how precise and useful and practical and all of that, and well specified and conceptually coherent was the theory in the first place, if the evidence changing doesn't affect your life.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, yeah. So, it's uh, a lot I, to ask,
1: especially yeah. <laughs> of a young science. So yeah. it doesn't bother me too much if my studies don't change my behavior, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's important to be humble about that then.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah cool. Well, yeah. Um, all right. So, NP, NP, neither practicing nor preaching. I guess our message is, yeah, keep going, but uh, I don't know, think about it. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't feel like we had much of an answer, but this was a super interesting letter. Be
1: self-aware that that's what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. ask yeah, yourself right. why
0: you're doing it and what it means. Yeah, okay, cool. Awesome, well, thank you to neither practicing nor preaching for your letter. And if you are listening and you would like to email us, you can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast dot com. Uh, we always love to hear from people with things they want us to read on the podcast, but also just if you have any feedback. Um, we were we were talking before the the before we started recording about like we're always curious what people listening think, what they like or don't like, uh, what they get out of us doing this because we kind of this is like the three of us do a Skype call every two weeks and we shoot the shit and then we put it on the internet. And, and so if you just like, have any thoughts about like what you think of the black goat, good or bad uh, um, or like why you listen or what you get out of it, that we're always interested in hearing that those are super interesting Mm -hmm. emails to get.
1: And thanks to the people, a few people reached out to us after our last episode um, because we expressed some like curiosity about um, why, why there's this perception about diversity and open science sometimes being tension, and I forgot to tell you guys about one person I'll forward you the <laughs> feedback, but I think a couple of people wrote to us that like here i I think I might have some insight about why people perceive attention there, and that was I really appreciated that. so yeah. thanks for that mm-hmm.
0: yeah, that i I tweeted about that and there was some really interesting discussion as well and and that's um yeah, that was really fun to to sort of hear what people thought about that and to hear people's reactions to what we were saying because that's yeah that that's sort of extending the conversation beyond us in a really interesting way so um and that was particularly
1: like a domain that we lack expertise about and i think there's a lot of perspectives we can't represent so it's great to hear those
0: yeah so yeah you can you can always email us letters at the com. Uh, we're on Twitter at black goat pod and we're on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash black goat pod. And if you click like on our, uh, on our page, then political campaigners will find you and direct you to the correct candidates. Um, so please do that. (laughs) uh yeah let's uh <laughs> anyway. um and yeah you can rate us on itunes as well that's a way that people can find out about us um and uh, uh you can post comments or just rate us as well so thank you everybody for listening um <laughs> i just said that like we're done okay <laughs> thank <laughs> you for, we're not done uh our so <laughs> our main topic today the thing we uh wanted to to sort of spend some time on is peer review Um, and so, uh, yeah, we kind of wanted to be a little bit more pragmatic. Um, you know, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll like muse wax philosophically about some things, but, uh, um, and actually I wanted to start by mentioning, I, cause I was doing a little bit of reading about, uh, peer review and I, I came across and I didn't have time to like read super deeply, but it was kind of interesting that, uh, um, the, the whole institution of peer review is credited to a guy named Henry Oldenburg. Have you guys heard this story before? So Henry yeah. Oldenburg was the the first secretary of the royal society, the the uh, organization that gave us nullius in mm-hmm. verba uh, trust or take nobody's word for it. And Henry Oldenburg was the first secretary of this society. And at the time, scientists would often not want to tell people what they were finding in their labs because they'd be afraid someone would steal credit for their ideas and so he came up with the the idea of publishing i don't i don't think he invented the idea of proceedings but he he was trying to get people to to publish um their their science in in a a society proceedings and so he he came up with two, apparently, innovations. One was rapid publication. I don't know what rapid meant in, like, the 17th century. But the idea was, like, send him his findings, he'll turn them around, and then you can get them on the record so everyone will know you found it. And then the other was that um, as a sort of both credibility and quality control, I'm guessing. I didn't read about, like, if he ever said what his reasons were, but he came up with the idea that he would send everything to a couple of people and get their feedback and and then decide whether to publish it or or whatever. So Henry Oldenburg, Royal Society uh, um, is, uh, and I, you know, with these historical things, it's always an open question who actually invented them first, but I saw a couple sources crediting that, um, which is kind of an interesting idea that uh, um, peer review was sort of invented as a way to, seemingly give credibility, but also make sure that uh, authors got credit, because you get your name printed on a thing with your ideas, and it's been vetted by others. And that's a way to say, like, yep, take this seriously. And I did it. And mm-hmm. that's exactly how it is today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I I wanted to do this topic partly because, uh, um, in addition to the reasons Sanjay said, I think um, I w- when at SPSB, my mentor lunch table was about I, they asked me to like pick a topic, and there are already a lot of roundtables on replicability stuff. So I was like, what could I mentor people on that I might have a little bit, you know of experience that could be helpful? And I thought, oh, well, maybe they have questions about like how the peer review process works, like the pragmatics of it. And so I did a, a mentor lunch on that, and the questions were awesome. And I think there's a lot of like really nuts and bolts issues that before you have a lot of experience, there's almost no way you can know. They're not written down. Um, mm-hmm. And so I thought, maybe, I assume, but I don't know for sure, that our audience is mostly early career people. And so I think some of those questions might be fun to talk about. So I wrote down some questions that came up at the mm-hmm. Mentor Lunch. Um, but also just in general, like, the unwritten rules of peer review or the unwritten norms. Um, and, and like here we would, it's important to caveat that, like, all three of us are social and personality psychologists in North America. Um, and publish in a pretty small range of the same journals as each other. So our... our yeah opinions might not generalize very much. But mm-hmm. I think yeah. we have some experience that might be interesting and useful to listeners. I thought after the mentor lunch, I thought that maybe I had more knowledge that I thought was maybe useless, but that might actually be useful.
0: So mm-hmm. Samine, you you've, I think, got not I think you've got the most editing experience of the three of us. So when you send stuff out and get it back, um do you always make sure you pick an odd number of reviewers so that you can <laughs> count up who gets the most published decisions and then just make your life easier yeah, right. is that how you do it
1: I mean I think that's really rare in social personality psychology so and I know you're joking but I think it is common in other fields like you know when I talk to friends in other fields and they ask me like oh how many manuscripts does your journal get and I'm like oh we get like 600 a year and they're like oh that's nothing like our in our field journals get so many thousand and one editor handles them all and I'm like what but it turns out the editor just writes a form letter and counts the number mm-hmm. of published votes versus reject right. votes from the reviewers. I think almost all social personality journals I know of, or I've had experience with, have the opposite philosophy that an editor's job is not to count reviews. I think there's the, the variance is more – so in all cases, we believe – the people I've worked with believe that editors are independent decision makers and they should take the reviewers advice into account and then make their own decision. But I do know some editors who won't go against, if there's unanimity among the reviewers, they won't go against that. Whereas I will. Um, So there is some difference of opinion, like how independent you can be as an editor from what the reviewers recommend. There's a huge range in how many reviewers you feel like you should get before you can make a decision so anywhere from one to like five, I think mm-hmm. I've seen pretty, like I've seen some editors who consistently get five, which seems really high That's to nuts. me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not, not so much. It's bad for the authors, but it's especially bad for the reviewers. Like I yeah. was a reviewer on a paper that I thought was clearly far below threshold. And after I got the decision letter and the reviews, that seemed to be a consensus view. And I apologize. I signed my review. So, you know, who I am. <laughs> um, and they got, they got four reviewers and I feel like you didn't need four people plus the editor in this case. Like I, maybe there are some cases where you do, but well, anyway, that's, so that's a big,
0: that's been a really big shift in the, in the course of my career is how much, um, I think it's, it's for the better, how, and the sort of two things that go in hand is editors as independent decision makers and desk rejections because desk rejections are by definition an independent decision And you have to read the manuscript and make a judgment to do that. And one of the things that, um, like, it always sucks to get desk rejected because you feel like, oh, God, I didn't even go out to review. But people will say, a lot of people will say, well, like, thanks for not dragging it out for six months or whatever, right? Like, yeah, making that decision quickly. And also, as a reviewer, I get irritated when I get asked to review something. And then I sit down and I read it, it's just so clearly not in the ballpark of the journal standards. And I'm like, why did you send this to me? Like, why didn't you just, Mm -hmm. you know, reject it? And so I, I, I really like I mean, I understand there there's downsides to editors being independent decision makers because they can have idiosyncratic or wrong, you know, decisions or whatever. Yeah. But, but that, that has really been a shift. And I think um, with the number of journals yeah. now and the number of reviews, it, it's necessary for editors to be making decisions independently
1: yeah I think and I'm just speaking for myself here as always on this podcast not for any journal I'm affiliated with but like my fantasy and I think we're moving a little bit towards this is like more like more steps of where things can get triaged so like right now the editor-in-chief could triage it and death reject it or the editor-in-chief could assign it to a handling editor or associate editor and that person could just reject it or send it out for review and then like and but I've also had the opposite at the opposite end of the spectrum where I'm like, okay, it's gone out for review, maybe even two rounds. I'm pretty sure, but I really wish like a couple more people would take a look at it with a particular like focus on we're about to publish this. Can you see anything wrong with it? And I can think of mm-hmm. published papers where you, in retrospect, we might wish that would have happened. It's so, like if we had if if everybody submitted fewer papers, we could have this model where the like first the editor in chief has to pass it on then the action editor has to pass it on to reviewers and the reviewers have to say it sounds pretty good and then there could be another step where it's like or I don't know the order but like one step could be like have you posted it as a preprint and gotten all the feedback you can get like let's get as many once where we think it's above a threshold like let's do another round of like eyeballs on this from a different perspective or whatever if we really really it depends where we want our threshold to be for what we publish but for some journals or some claims that might be a good model. But a do lot of like times that we, we do too much early on and not enough later, right? We send things out for review that probably don't need to be sent out for review. Right. And then we don't yeah, do scrutiny right. of things that we do publish sometimes. Mm-hmm.
2: Do you feel like the decisions about whether or not something gets published or not is are better when there are more reviewers? I think, yes, only in the sense
1: that, so a lot of people make a big deal out of the fact that there's no consensus among reviewers, and I think that does, yeah. pro- that is probably a reflection of a problem with peer review, but I actually think in a perfect peer review system, which I just want to say I don't think we're anywhere near that, so I'm not defending the current peer review system, but in a perfect peer review system, I wouldn't care about consensus, because my experience with reviews is basically like, there's, there there's it's not that rare. It's pretty common. That there's like one huge flaw that only one yeah. of like three or four yeah, people right. the paper see. Um, and so I think the more eyeballs there are on it, the better the chances of finding that flaw. And if we yeah. think about papers that have been published in prestigious journals that later were criticized post publication, mm-hmm. it was because the right person read the paper with the right perspective or looking at it in the right way. And, you know, sending it out to 10 reviewers wouldn't have guaranteed that that would have happened. So I think that more eyeballs helps, but not because of the, increasing consensus because of the chance of an outlier reviewer, a or reader catching something that no one else caught. But it has to be something that there would be consensus after it's been pointed out, right? If they're the only one who sees it and then they're still the only one who sees it after it's been pointed out to other people, then that's a problem. Mm -hmm. But
0: yeah. I mean, I think this brings up the question of like how much, and this has been a focus of, I feel like it's been a big discussion for, you know, past half dozen years or so, like, how much should we expect out of pre-publication peer review anyway? And this yeah. this relates to the efficiency argument, right? And this relates to the, like, how many reviewers mm-hmm. and, and, you know, should an editor go ahead and publish something against all reviewers, against one reviewer, whatever. And, and because I think... I, I feel like my own understanding is sh- like, I, I don't know that I ever took published things completely as like, oh, it must be true because it was published and I'm pretty sure I didn't. But uh, I, I've gotten even more skeptical over yeah. time that like, okay, if it's published, all that means is that it got through a very imperfect filter and mm-hmm. it's, it's less likely to have major conceptual gaps than a preprint would yeah but it doesn't so, yeah go ahead it's
1: interesting as a thought experiment ask yourself would you trust something more if all you know about it is that it was published in journal x and, and i don't want to pick on a particular journal but a journal with a good reputation but that may not be may or may not be a valid signal of quality or like for me if like julia aurora tweets it like to me <laughs> that's a valid signal than just about any journal or like it's not just her right but i could think of like a dozen or two dozen people who if they tweet about it and say this is a good paper like I've read this closely and I think it holds up or something like that Mm -hmm. that would mean more to me um, because with also with the published papers we don't know who the reviewers are and often we don't know who the handling editor was uh, although more and more journals are, are identifying the handling editor which I think is a good thing.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think the right. So, so there are different people who care about different things, and there are some people that care about. Uh, this is maybe kind of what you're saying is that there are some people who would attend to the things that I care about, would be likely to to praise it or or criticize it on the on the same basis, right. and so I would trust them. And then there are other people that it's like no, they they just the, what they they're looking for is different. Um, and with mm-hmm. closed pre-publication peer review, you you don't know whether the peer reviewers were paying attention to the things that you either have. It, and yeah. it can be an expertise thing that, the, you know, whether they have the expertise to to notice yeah. the things that I would care about. Or it can be a values thing, whether they would care about it. Right. Yeah. And so, right. yeah. But, and so, so it's like something. And so, so how much do we how much should we be expecting of pre-publication peer review anyway, given all of that? And how much should we be increasing post-publication peer review, which we don't yeah. do as much of as we could?
2: Yeah, I have a couple of reactions to that. One is, so we were talking about the lack of consensus among reviewers, and that seems like um, maybe something that couldn't be solved with any kind of perfect system, because I think that there isn't a core construct, right? Like there is no like core quality measure of the paper because people have different values and things like that so I think there's never going to be a lot of consensus unless all of a sudden everybody's values align maybe like within a subfield or within like for a particular journal or something like that um but I think I'm very skeptical about that happening across the field and I think that's fine um I think it's fine for like two people to look at the same paper and one person thinks it's amazing and one person thinks it's terrible. And like neither of those is like clearly correct. Um, but you're also talking about, so post um, post publication review Sanjay, I'm just, so I'm curious how that, that kind of system would work because more and more, I think that are like our bar for, something, a finding being out in the world, whatever that means exactly, like having an impact in some way, um, should be high because I think we're like, we're bad at getting rid of findings that are already out there. Um, but then I obviously see the merits of post-publication peer review. So yeah. How, how does that system end up working? Like people get a finding out there and then, um, and then it's like people who are reading it after it's out there who are either like giving it their stamp of approval or like saying that they're that you shouldn't trust it
0: yeah i i i, I feel this might sound contradictory but I, maybe i'll sort of think this through and there's not like i i actually feel like everything should be able to be out there um and that's one of the things that's really exciting about having preprints is that you know, prior to preprints and prior to sort of electronic transmission, journals were the only way you had to, other than like there were conferences, but journals were pretty much the only way you had to communicate what was going on in your lab to the rest of the world. That's why they Mm -hmm. were invented. Right. And, and, but now, and, and, and there are gatekeepers on journals. And so essentially we had this system where everything had to go through gatekeepers. And if you had something you wanted Mm -hmm. to tell the scientific community, you you had to persuade somebody else to to publish it for you. There was no other way. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't like that. I think that scientists, if you really feel like you have something to say, whether it's a finding you want to get out there, an interpretation, a commentary, there should be an avenue for it. Um, and I mm-hmm. think preprints, I think blogs and social media is a more informal pathway. So I think that's super important. I think what uh, where we're seeing attention right now is with journals that are claiming that being published in our journal, which is most journals, um, that are claiming that being published in our journal is a signal of quality and it's a signal of impact. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that's where I think if you're going to claim, like we publish the most important findings with the biggest impact that you can rely on the most, then both the author who sends it to a journal with that mission and is seeking to to gain that credibility and the journal itself have to be open to criticism after the fact because those are and and I think the 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 whole basis of saying that a journal being published in a journal communicates that needs to be critiqued because journals need mm-hmm. to earn that and they need to constantly fight to keep that and they and they should to be challenged. Be audited. That. They need to be held yeah. accountable. Yeah, Absolutely. like if they're
2: claiming that then we should be auditing
0: whether they are
1: That's true, yeah.
2: So, are you against the idea of gatekeepers at all, or is it just that, like, you think there should be a way in which things are available to people, but then gatekeepers are operating operating after that stage?
0: Yeah, I, I'm. I'm. I'm not against all gatekeeping. I'm. I'm against needing to go through a gatekeeper to get your ideas or your data or whatever out there. So absolutely, okay. like anybody can say, I'm I'm going to start up a journal, I'm going to start up a, a preprint ser- service, I'm going to start up a whatever, and I'm going to decide what my rules are and whatever. Like that's totally legit. You can do that, um, mm-hmm. and and so it's totally fine for a journal to say we've decided that our mission is to publish X, right? And and to do that, yeah. But there there should be a way to, as a scientist, there shouldn't be prior restraint. You should be able to get whatever you want out there and circumvent that system. And, and nowadays, we have access to that. And that's where a lot of like, disruption and and sort of the uh, God, I can't believe I just said the word disruption, I sound like some Silicon Valley (laughs) asshole. Anyway, um, Mm -hmm. that's where a lot of like, sort of change has been happening. And, and there are like generational differences, because I think younger people are just more used to they've grown up with more of their lives with social media and electronic access to things. Anyway, we're kind of, yeah. um, Yeah. Well, so
1: related to that, I think that part of what you're expressing Sanjay and I think part of what, why we need those other mechanisms that don't go through gatekeepers is because I think I've, I've been shocked at how people talk about peer review and about editors and about journals in this reverential way. Um, And we all know that watching the sausages get made is a lot uglier than this like, idealized way that we talk about it but I think that the discrepancy is really quite large and so for one thing like a journal isn't even one thing like who the editorial team is changes every few years and so you know a journal the same journal now and the same journal 10 years ago could have completely different values and different standards and different whatever the publication committee that chooses the editors changes every few years the policies can change and even within one team in one year even if the personnel doesn't change the editors don't change the editors are different from each other and you can have very different experiences if one editor handles your paper than if another editor handles your paper even under the same mm-hmm. policies the same editor-in-chief the same publication committee and society running the journal so this idea that there is a standard for a journal or for, or even for a journal at yeah. a given time is a little bit oversimplified and right like so if you know, and, and because editors are human, they can make mistakes. And because a team of editors has some more fallible humans, are you know, like there's going to be yeah. a lot. Like it's just when you actually, you don't have to dig very deep to realize that this glorified idea of like, well, it's met this objective standard. And so therefore we should treat it as like truth is, is which I know everybody denies that they do, but then we all turn around yeah. and do it. Now, I think, um,
0: I think mm-hmm. that's an evolution, too, that people go through during their careers, right? So when you start off, you don't know any of the people and you don't know how it works. And so it's like, oh, JPSP or psychological science or SBPS yeah. is like, it's this amorphous mass, right? It's just this mm-hmm. this abstraction. And then as you get to know, and so this is something that's important for ECRs to know. And this this is where having either a collaborator who knows the system or just people you can talk mm-hmm. to can be really helpful because you start to know the individuals. So like one thing that I tell people, uh, um, you know, tell sort of junior people I collaborate with when we're trying to like decide where to send something is go see if the current editor published an editorial when they started their term because they'll often lay out like their vision and and they might say, oh, this is what we're looking for or this is what we're not looking for or whatever. And those Mm -hmm. are things, you know, you can cite in a cover letter to an editor, say, you said in your editorial, we're looking for more of this kind of work.
1: Cover letters are a dangerous place to put important things. Mm -hmm. I think many cover letters don't get read or they get skimmed. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Um, Um, So like, that was one question that came up at the mentor lunch is like, what are cover letters for? And sometimes they're one sentence and I don't mind when you know I don't yeah. mind if people are like you asked for a cover letter so I'm typing this sentence period and that's right. it like maybe you don't have anything to say but for me like the things that I would recommend putting in a cover letter are like yeah I mean what you're saying is good but don't hold your breath that it'll get read carefully um any like history about the manuscript like we did submit a manuscript similar to this one in the past and you rejected it but here's why this is a new submission mm-hmm. um or like I think it's also a good place to say if it's pre-registered it has open data open materials things like that although that should also be in the manuscript. Um, but I think a lot of people are really confused about cover letters. And I think there's huge differences across editors and journals about whether they read them, how closely they read them, whether they share them with author with reviewers, usually not, but some mm-hmm. do. Um, so it's a dangerous place to put anything important, but there's well, not really a lot of other places where you can put things that don't go in the manuscript. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. I was going to say that that's your right. Like things like, like you were saying, like open data, pre-registration, they should, they're part of the scientific evaluation. It's more things right, right. like related to the the vision of the editor that, you wouldn't put in the manuscript. Um, yeah. So what, uh, um, we're talking about cover letters. Let's talk about sort of responding to letters. Like, what do you, what do you guys think about when you, how do you handle it when you don't agree with a reviewer? And let's assume that the editor hasn't given you any indication. Like sometimes the editor will say definitely like make sure you address Dude. reviewer two's point seven, And then sometimes they'll say, you know, you don't have to worry about this point, um, but in the middle when, when you can't tell. So uh, it's what do pretty you rare do? that they do
1: the latter. I, I think editors very rarely say, don't worry about this point yeah. because yeah. the reviewers are seeing the letter too. And you're kind of dissing the reviewer and you ask can them I, to do this favor
0: can, for you. And then you're like, can I just say shout out to Laura King? Uh, who, in my experience, in a very tactful, diplomatic way, uh, uh, would yeah. would be very uh, supportively directive about what right. she was going to care about, and she she would say, "I'm not going to send this back to the reviewers," and I was like, "Okay, then I don't have to, you know, whatever." But uh, but no, I agree with you. They like usually usually editors don't do that. Um, so yeah, yeah. so in that, if an
1: editor wrote a pretty detailed letter and didn't mention a specific point that a reviewer raised, that might be a signal that they don't care that much that you do it, or they might even just, dis- if hopefully if an editor thinks you shouldn't do it, they would say that, you, you know, reviewers feelings can only be protected so much. Yeah. Um, so what do you, so what do, you if, do in yeah.
0: that in between situation? Like, what's your advice to, to people?
1: It depends what where your bottom line is. So as an author, it depends. Would you be willing to do that if that's what it took to get published? If so, but you think it's not the better thing to do, then what I would say is I would say don't do it. And in the cover letter, explain why you didn't do it, but offer to do it. If if you're, if it's a deal breaker for the editor, you can say like if you really feel strongly about this, we would be willing to do it. Here's our here are our reasons why we don't think we should do it. Um, but if you're and if you're not willing to do it, then I would just leave out that part. I would still make the strongest case you can in the your cover letter your response letter. About why you didn't take the reviewers' um, suggestions, and if the answer is it's just inconvenient, don't make up a like intellectual reason, but just say like yeah. we were only willing to go so far, and you know we weren't willing to collect a whole new study or to go back and code mm-hmm. those videos for these new variables or or whatever. Um, you're allowed to say, like, I'm not willing to do that for this publication. I mean, I think sometimes what people are thinking is if I was willing to do that, I would have gone to a better journal. Um, And that's fine. And I try to anticipate that in my decision letters, too, to say, like, you may not be willing to do this, but this would be a deal breaker for me if you don't do it. I know it's the big ask, but, like, this would be necessary. So think about it before you decide whether to pursue a revision or something like that. Mm Um, yeah. So I think if you like, don't make your paper worse to satisfy a reviewer. So if you disagree yeah. with the reviewer or with the editor for that matter, if you disagree with one of other points, you think it's going to make it worse, don't do it. And then decide if it's not clear that it would make it worse, you just rather not do it than offer to do it if, if that's what it takes. But then if you really don't want to do it, don't offer. Yeah.
0: yeah. What do you do when an editor asks you to do something that you think is wrong? Have you guys had this happen to you before? So I, I had this happen early yeah. in my career. And it wasn't wrong exactly um, in the sense... It wasn't signed... Scient- well, it was it was problematic. And I just ended up going along with it because I was like... I think I was in my postdoc at the time. And it was an interpretive issue. And so I felt like, well, the data is still going to be the data. And it was just they wanted me to frame something in a different way. And nowadays, I would... Mm-hmm push back but at the time I was just like look I'm just gonna like put this in in these terms because you know I kind of have to go along but I think that's a you know I I think more and more I think because of our recognition of qrps and p hacking and things like that recognizing when editors are themselves asking you or endorsing reviewers asking you to do things that are like p hacky that are Mm harky that are, you know, things like that. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you guys do? Have you had that come up recently?
2: I I think that I, um, I had that situation come up a few years ago where somebody, I can't remember if it was the reviewer or the editor or the reviewer asked for it and the editor agreed. And it was like they wanted me to do, um, a mediational analysis with data that was correlational um and I just I did it. Um, I think, I think I was in graduate school, so I think I wasn't like I at the time. I felt conscious that it was like not really an informative analysis, but also sort of like you, Sanjay. I think I sort of thought like this isn't gonna change anything. People are just gonna like see how the data falls out in this analysis that's not very meaningful. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I think now I would also. Um, I also would push back about that a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, I think I think now I would push back. But also,
1: A, now I'm more likely to be taken seriously if I push back. And yeah. now I can afford to yeah. get a rejection. Yeah, yeah, and of course. Mm-hmm. Like so
0: I, I mean, think I it think all depends
1: on how badly you need to get into that journal and yeah, what yeah. you think of that. Ed- yeah, do you, re- do you g- generally respect the editor and the editor's decision, like everything else in the letter was reasonable? In which case, I think definitely try to reason with them and see mm-hmm. if you can convince them. But yeah. If you're like, no, I know this editor has these values. I went to this journal anyway, and you know, maybe whatever. But you're like, I know I'm not going to convince them. Are you? So you're risking. You know, you're risking high risk of rejection if you don't do it. Then I think you have to figure out what where your values are, where you draw the line, and how yeah. how much you care about this publication in this journal.
0: I mean, I think the the idea of like open peer review and open editorial processes is really interesting in light of this, right? Because it would be interesting to, I, th- I think if, and, the, the, you know, to some extent, like things like putting the handling editor's name on the manuscript, um, is a sort of small step in that direction. But if I think if editors are more visible and more accountable, this is the sort of thing that that could address. I realize there might be downsides yeah. to that as well, but, uh, um, yeah, it's, it is, I think, a an important, issue because you're gonna like over a career you're gonna get asked to do things you don't agree with and and I mean another tough thing is just like if an editor says to do something you think it's wrong you have to be open to the possibility that you're wrong too um mm-hmm. and sometimes you mm-hmm. might be totally sure and it, it might be obvious sometimes it might be a matter of different values but some you know sometimes like you you might be wrong I mean I think that's that's a generally hard thing about getting reviews and and that's also something that I think I've gotten better at is like, you you know, I, it's like at this point I almost know like I'm gonna get the the letter, I'm gonna read it, I'm gonna have my my first reading is gonna be fuck this shit these assholes what are they right. why are they trying to ruin my manuscript? And I, it's like I have this meta awareness that like okay,
2: I can yeah. have
0: I can have my that reaction, do, yeah. set it down, look at it a couple days later and be like oh, yeah, this kind of makes sense. Like this, this person mm-hmm. actually like, let me see if I can figure out like, where this person was coming from. And oftentimes, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're right. Yeah, sorry.
1: Yeah, I think it's mm-hmm. really hard to keep both things in mind that like, I think we tend to idealize a peer review process and editors and forget that editors are human and can make mistakes. So I think we need, like, I think everybody should remember that like editors can make mistakes, and we should hold them accountable and so on. On the other hand, Editors also handle many, many papers, and everyone who gets rejected or gets a harsh revision submit resubmit feels like the editor is wrong. So you feeling mm-hmm. like the editor is wrong <laughs> is not necessarily a strong signal right. that, the editor, that the peer review process fell apart.
0: It's, uh, it's highly sensitive, sensitive, but low specificity or something, exactly.
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, Like, and so one question I get asked a lot is, like, how common are appeals to rejection decisions? And they're really, really rare, and that's something I didn't know until I was Mm -hmm. I, I had the impression they were a lot more common when I was an author and hadn't been an editor than now that I'm an editor. So it's a big deal to appeal a decision and it should be right. Like an editor's job would be impossible if like a third of rejections were appealed. Um, so it's probably more like one in a hundred or one in 50. I don't know. It's, it's really rare. Um, and it's a lot of
2: work to deal with an appeal, which is fine. Like that mechanism needs to exist. Do you have to deal with an appeal?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that so.
2: It's never like the case where somebody appeals something and you're just like, no. Well, In I process? often, often I have to at least go
1: back and re reread the paper, reread the reviews, reread yeah. the decision letter. Um, yeah. So uh, that's what I mean by deal with, and then craft I a see. response that takes at least as much time as the original decision letter, and so on. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's a lot of work. It's probably more work than handling the paper the first time, often, especially if if it's not the same editor who handled it. So if the appeal goes to the editor-in-chief and they weren't the handling editor, then I'm unfamiliar with, you know, the whole process and yeah. so on. But yeah.
0: This this is something where I think there are... I've seen people discuss that there are field-level differences in how common appeals are. So I think social and personality, they're, they're relatively rare. Um, I think there's some other fields where there's common... There's also individual differences. So I, I know some people who... Mm-hmm that's just part of their, str- and people in social and personality where it's rare, who, who that's part of their, like, they don't maybe do it every single time, but that's like a fairly standard mm-hmm. tool in their toolbox. Mm-hmm. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that annoys me because they're, it's, I mean, I, you know, I get that like everybody's got a career to make and whatever. And it's, it's like, mm-hmm. you do have to work the system, but, um, it's yeah, a very mm-hmm. kind of, yeah, I, I feel like if it, it's a way to sort of try to exploit the system. It's a way, it's a very privileged kind of it's thing. It's a to way do. to make it
1: because that no one will ever be an editor ever again. Yeah. <laughs> like if if there's too many appeals, it's just yeah. an impossible job. Yeah. And again, I don't think we should have too much sympathy for editors. I think they get treated like a little bit too delicately and not held accountable enough, but but there is no time built in for that part of the process of editing. Like sure I get a little I make a little bit of time for editing, but then when something gets added to my plate like an appeal, yeah. I have to find that time somewhere, which is absolutely part of my responsibility. But
2: The system wouldn't work if there were a lot of, at least the way it's set up for social and personality sake, if there were a lot of appeals. I have a question for you guys about signing reviews. So, do both of you sign your reviews?
0: I do. Yeah.
2: How did you make that decision? So, I signed my first review recently, which I guess means that now I'm signing my reviews. Um, But I'm curious about how you guys ended up deciding to do that and when and if your reviews changed after you started signing them.
1: I started probably a, two years ago, something like that, two, three years ago, um, probably around the same time I became editor in chief because I was writing so many signed decision letters that I was like, at this point, mm-hmm. if I, if, if negative decisions and negative reviews are going to make enemies and I'm making enemies and yeah, views don't feel that different. I don't get
2: the bucket kind of for
1: me, the, like what people say about how it changed, how they write their reviews, not true for me at all. It doesn't change huh. anything, but mm-hmm. I don't know what that says about me, but
0: yeah i i don't know if it actually changed the content of my reviews it certainly makes me think an extra time about like make sure that i'm sort of you know being uh you know saying things that i would stand behind both content wise and kind of tone wise um yeah i you know i realize there's a lot of there's a there's been a lot there's a lot of discussion about signing reviews about the vulnerability of earlier career people and I certainly started doing that later. There was a really interesting Hilda Bastion had a really interesting blog post recently which I thought was spot on because she wasn't claiming there's any simple solutions but she was saying like people say I'm afraid to sign my review because uh, I might get retaliated against and everyone goes uh-huh, yeah and she was kind of like why are we okay with the idea that people are going to get retaliated against? And Mm -hmm. um, like when you just sort of stop the conversation there, you're just kind of saying, yeah, that's a fact of academic life. Um, And Mm -hmm. so she, you know, she was making an argument again, this isn't going to solve it um, because it's a complicated problem. One solution isn't going to end it, but she was saying like journal, the scientific community generally and journals specifically need to start treating retaliation against reviewers as professional misconduct and Mm -hmm. like a journal saying this isn't going to stop it because you won't know every time it happens whatever so that's why it's complicated but like if we start shifting the norm and saying that retaliating against someone who has given you fair criticism is scientific misconduct like we we should even if we can't catch it what every time it happens we should start talking about it in those terms
2: what does retaliation look like? This is somebody sending like a really like a really mean email to somebody or
0: so she used, calling them that in person or. she used an example of someone who um, this she posted a tweet where, you know, someone was saying that they had signed a review and then they got a phone call from the author oh, wow. like uh um, you know, bullying them basically. So that was yeah. that was like a pretty direct retaliation. I think the thing that people worry about uh, which is a very understandable worry is like, what if this person is one of my tenure letter writers or on an awards committee someday or something like that. And I think those are, um, mm-hmm. uh, and that, that's why like you're not going to solve that, right? Because someone who's just like pissed at you because you once reviewed their thing badly can just sort of like shave yeah. down their tenure letter and you'll never, no one will be able to attribute it. But I think if, if at least we start saying like, that is not Okay. Um, if we mm-hmm. start having that conversation, we at least need to start acknowledging that that's not okay. Yeah. Even if, even if we don't know My, how to do something about everything.
1: I think it's, it's such a big concern that I would advise pre-tenure people not to sign their reviews. And I would like to live in a world where everybody could sign their reviews. But if I was giving yeah. advice
0: oh totally. to, yeah, I don't, so if
1: someone asks for really? advice yeah
0: I, I mean, I, I would say okay, so I would maybe... say people should make that choice. Like I wouldn't fault yeah, somebody. Of course, I wouldn't of tell course. people don't sign no, your reviews. I mean, no. yeah, but i would no, I would I... say like that's a le- that's a totally legitimate choice to make. I wouldn't pressure yeah. anybody to do it. but I also wouldn't no, exactly. I know a lot of pre-tenure people who do sign their reviews and I wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't go up to them and say this no, is a no, bad I idea any less of them
1: at all. no, yeah. I just think it's completely understandable and maybe even like rational to not sign it. pre-tenure. Mm-hmm. I know I've heard so many people like say that they hate someone's guts because they rejected their paper or wrote in a negative review of their paper or their grant or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they, they seem to think that's a totally legitimate reason to hold a grudge and it seems to imply that they would negatively evaluate their research, right. that, neg- that grudge yeah. would tend to their valuation of that person's research. Yeah, I
2: find that very strange. Yeah. I mean, I guess like I see what you mean to mean, and that maybe it's like one of those things where we don't want to be asking like... Early career researchers to be falling on that sword, but I do think the more that people sign their reviews, the more it like normalizes this idea that like scientific criticism is part mm. of the process and is like something that we should be able to stand behind. It is not an insult. Yeah. Um, so,
0: yeah, I think yeah, if, yeah, I think that yeah.
2: good. I think if people sign their reviews, I think
1: my perception is that the quality of reviews actually higher, the more junior the reviewer. I think there's a correlation. And I think if people started signing their reviews, I think authors and other reviewers would see that. And I think it would challenge our assumptions about status and eminence in a way that would be good. So I wish we lived Mm -hmm. in a world where it would be really easy to ask everyone to sign their reviews, but I wouldn't ask a junior person to do that.
0: I mean, I think if you imagine a more radical change where we had open peer review generally, Um, where authors and reviewers, and so then you could, you, it would be out in the open that, oh, you know, old so-and-so, uh, had their work critically responded to by this person. And and so everyone would kind of know, oh, maybe he's like holding a grudge against that person. Yeah.
1: I mean, also there are times when I wonder, so, and if we had open peer review, which means publishing the reviews along with the paper, um, so there are times when, like, a junior person writes a really great review, and then a more senior person writes, like, a very superficial review. And then when I send the letter, I wonder if the senior person reads that and thinks, oh, man. Well, they don't know that the other review is junior necessarily. But I wonder if they think, man, like, I really didn't do a very good job on that. I'm a oh, little it. bit ashamed seeing that review. Yeah, but damn if it was public, <laughs> public, right, maybe they would. If it was public, maybe right. people would step up their reviewing game a little bit. I mean, not yeah. Again, yeah. most reviews are really high quality and helpful. Yeah, um, yeah. But I do think that some people
2: really underestimate how much value there is in junior people's reviews yeah when you said like that you don't think that your reviews changed at all after you started signing them like my interpretation of that is that you've always been like um very conscientious about reviewing i yeah. sus- i kind of know that you are um but i think my suspicion for myself is that i'll be i'll put a little more effort in now that i'm signing them than i would have before like just being more careful about like making sure you making sure I get something exactly right. Like I'm not like careless about saying like, Oh, you never mentioned this, but then they right. they did if I'd been more careful or something.
0: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we should probably wrap up. Cause I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah <laughs> there's, so, there's so much, uh, say about so, the many, topic. so many yeah. things to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, cool. Uh, thank you everyone for listening and this has been the black goat and uh happy first anniversary to us again (laughs) and if you've been listening from the beginning thank you so much if you just found us uh thanks for finding us and we'll talk to you next time